Thanks for joining the Operation Innovation team, where the mission is to add some tools to your leadership tool bag so you can climb your mountain of success. So let's get it. Hey there, everyone. Uh, let me first take some time to introduce Jonasen Goldson. Uh, he is a rabbi, an author, a writer, a TEDx speaker, a hitchhiker, a prior high school teacher, potential presidential candidate, the list goes on. So uh, I know I'm not the first one to love your rich journey, and I'm so excited to give you another platform where you can really share your gifts with the world. So thank you so much for being here. Oh, it's a real pleasure, Foley. <laughs> um, so with all your list of accomplishments, uh, you are also the director of Ethical Imperatives, LLC, from what I read. <laughs> and uh, this is where you teach leaders and professionals how good ethics is good business and the benefits of intellectual diversity. So I wanted to give you an opportunity to kind of share some background in that um, with the OpIn team and how you discovered your niche in supporting the ethical part of leadership. Okay, well, uh, give you the thumbnail bio. You said I was a hitchhiker. <laughs> a former hitchhiker is is a little more accurate. Um, <laughs> the car breaks down. Uh, I graduated from the University of California with a degree in English. Well, what does one do with a degree in English? Well, I went hitchhiking cross country, uh, and then of I went uh, sure, and then uh, natural natural progression. Uh, <laughs> then I went backpacking across Europe, and after a year, I ended up in Israel. And that's where I connected with my Jewish roots. I'd been raised with really no knowledge of what it meant to be Jewish and uh, changed the whole trajectory of my life. I, uh, I lived in Israel for nine years, met my wife there, had her first two children, uh, became an Orthodox rabbi, and then embarked on my career teaching high school students, Jewish high school students, uh, the values and, the, uh, and the, the intellectual and moral discipline that had been so intriguing and attractive to me. Um, taught for a year in Budapest, Hungary, two years in Atlanta, Georgia, and 20 years in St. Louis, where I live now. And when my school closed in 2016, um, I wanted to take the universal message, messages that I had learned within Judaism and apply them to a more general audience. And when I tried to distill 3,000 years of wisdom into a soundbite, I came up with ethical leadership and intellectual diversity. And uh, so what I did then was uh, started my business as a, as a keynote speaker, which was uh, just starting to take off when the uh, COVID situation shut down the speaking industry. So uh, now, like many, I'm, I'm uh, trying to figure out exactly how to adapt to uh, <laughs> current standards. But, um, you know, everything about Jewish teaching has to do with an awareness of how our actions affect those who share our world and the environment in which I find, we find ourselves. Mm -hmm. And so for a leader to develop an ethical mindset will enable that leader to create an environment where there's trust, trust leads to loyalty, loyalty leads to passion, and passion leads to productivity. So it's, uh, it's a formula for success in every sense. 
Why do you think it's so difficult then for uh, some leaders to grasp that concept? Because the way you laid it out is beautiful. And um, I know you've written millions of articles and I know I'm exaggerating, not millions, but multiple articles and <laughs> multiple books on this subject. And uh, it's obvious that it's a need um, that in some or arguably most places isn't being filled. Um, what do you think is the challenge? The challenge is there are two challenges um, that are really two parts of the same challenge. So there's, a, there's a misconception that we have to choose between being good and being successful. You know, we, we have these little uh, phrases that are sort of they've crept in, into uh, uh, the English language. Uh, nice guys finish last. Uh, <laughs> no good deed goes unpunished. You know, those type, types of things, little cynical little ideas that, that affect our, our way of thinking. But more fundamentally, we're living in a society that is extremely short-term focused. Um, you know, earnings goals, quarterly goals, the bottom line. Uh, you know, if you have a program that is on track to be enormously successful, but it's going to take time to get there, that short-term mentality is really working against you. And this is something that's it's intrinsic to our biology. You know, the 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 um, the uh, amygdala, the part of the brain, they call the lizard reptile brain. You know, everything is about immediate gratification and survival instinct. And the frontal lobe is the forward-looking part of our brain that plans, that, that strategizes. And those two parts of ourselves are in constant conflict. Mm -hmm. They're in combat and they're pulling at each other. And when the society is set up in a way that it feeds that need for immediate gratification and short-term payoffs, then we're working at a distinct disadvantage. Mm -hmm. And that really is going to inhibit, inhibit our, uh, our ethical framework and, uh, and our, our appreciation for the benefits that come from acting ethically. Right. So when you're, when you're advising leaders on how to better apply ethics. So say, you know, you, you stand back and you're watching uh, a group of people interact and you notice that there's, you know, there might be some, some discord there. There might be something that, uh, that they need to really do to improve that. What are your recommendations in that uh, instance? Well, in a general sense, everything's about relationship. I mean, everything is about relationship. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's the key to success in every level, whether it's family, parents, children, spouse, and certainly business. Um, what we just mentioned before, if, if you have loyal employees, loyal colleagues, if you trust each other, if you there, if you know that you have each other's backs, um, and if you know that there's um, it's a terrible expression to use, but it's become so popular now. If work is a safe space for you know, trying things. There's mm -hmm. a freedom to experiment. You know, one of the things I talk about in my keynote is, remember the United uh, Airlines uh, scandal a couple of years ago when the, they dragged the doctor off the plane um, and they ended up with a with a multi-million dollar lawsuit and then the stock price plummeted a billion dollars. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, stock value plummeted a billion, billion dollars. Well, you know, why did that happen? The gate agent, they had overbooked the flight, so it was their fault. Mm -hmm. The gate agent had the authority to offer up to $800 per passenger for anyone willing to, to give up their seat to take a later flight. 
but mm -hmm. no one wanted to give up their seat. So the gate agent, I don't have the authority to offer anything more than that. And so basically hit the nuclear button. Um, it wasn't her fault. It was the fault of her supervisors who didn't instill in her the confidence that they would back her up if she needed to make an executive decision. So they didn't trust her to let her know that she could exceed that authority if she needed to. And she didn't trust them that if she did something that was ultimately in the best interest of the plane and the airline and the passengers, that she would be supported rather than penalized. Mm -hmm. So if you don't have that kind of trust, then you're not going to have an effective organization. You might be able to get through the day-to-day, -day, but the moment something goes wrong, everything's going to break down. And trust comes from ethics. It comes from that awareness that people are human, mm -hmm. that in the, in the moment, you're going to have to make snap decisions. And if they're made in a way that is thoughtful, that is, is well-intentioned, that is the best call that you could make under the circumstance. I mean, wouldn't it have been better to pay a few hundred dollars more for that passenger to get off than to lose a fortune in bad press and bad business and, and, and stock, uh, stock value? But what would have happened if she would have actually offered a thousand or twelve dollars? She might have been reprimanded. So why should she put herself out on a limb to do what's good for the airline if she doesn't trust the airline is going to do what's good for her. Yeah, and I absolutely agree. And I, I really like one of the points that you touched on uh, as far as uh, leaders and what they should be doing to allow freedom of uh, and well, freedom of movement essentially for their for their employees, but then also empowering them to make those decisions. Um, because I feel like those you know, we talk about those as ethical concepts, but really those are basic leadership competencies. <laughs> um, so the fact that those aren't happening um, to the point that we have to say, hey, we have an ethical duty to be able to do this for somebody, even just to get to that level instead of just leaving it at a basic competency of a leader. That's, I think that that speaks a lot to the, the type of uh, pitfalls, I guess, that that you see in leaders uh, today in certain companies. Yeah, I mean, you certainly appreciate this from from uh, being in the military, that there, there, there has to be this perpetual tension between following orders and taking initiative. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's no clear line. I mean, I often say that compliance is the enemy of ethics. Because, well, you need compliance laws. You need basic regulations of what's allowed and what's not allowed. But it's not enough. Compliance is the beginning of ethics. It's not the solution for ethics. Because no matter what you legislate, no matter how many rules you put in place, there are always going to be gray areas. There are always going to be loopholes. Mm -hmm. The worst thing about a loophole is that I can now justify my unethical behavior by saying I'm in compliance. Whereas what I should be doing is seeing that the compliance is a code, a general code of conduct that is supposed to teach me to be sensitive to the ethical nuances that cannot all be accounted for. And if I develop that sensitivity, which is part of this ethical mindset, then I, my, my goal is going to be to do what's right, to do what's best for the company, for my colleagues, for me, for the big picture, for the client, it's that, it's that totality of perspective mm -hmm. that all plays into this idea 
of ethics. And if that's the mind, that is going to automatically become the mindset of an effective leader. I agree. Um, I think it's so interesting as you're talking about it uh, and as we're kind of exploring some of the pitfalls of some of these leaders, do you feel like your, uh, your work in applying ethics to leadership is uh, innovative? Well, it's interesting. Um, I mean, I've been I've been doing this for about four years, and the amount of discussion I see about ethics in that time is quite it, it's increased dramatically, mm -hmm. becoming much more part of the language of uh, you know in social media, in articles. Um, you know, there's some different nuances of language, but but it all comes down to these ideas of of a you know, the servant leader, um, the, um, the responsible leader, uh, the, 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 what, what are, it's a terrible phrase, soft skills. Um, you know, soft skills make them sound like they're optional or they're, <laughs> or, but. Soft know, skills are hard to master. They're they are. really hard to master because they can't be quantified. Mm-hmm. Yep. And because they can't be quantified, then a lot of people don't focus on them. Right. Right. But mm -hmm. that's, that's uh, you know, whatever metaphor you want to use, it's, it's the bedrock on which everything stands. It's the glue that holds everything together. Um, you, you really have to have that ability to connect. And, and that really before the ability, the desire to connect with people and to mm -hmm. establish those relationships. Again, go to go to your I mean, the military is a beautiful um, uh, place just to see how this works, because you know, you're you're if you're in a in a in a combat situation, you know, the person on your right, the person on your left, your your lives are in each other's hands. And if you don't have that trust, it simply won't work. Yeah. And while the stakes in a business may not be quite that immediate or quite that high, but you do want the business to succeed. Mm -hmm. and you want the enterprise to serve the people that it's meant to serve. Yeah. I always think uh, to that point, I thought that it was very interesting uh, whenever I transitioned out of active duty that uh, I did not realize how uh, ingrained in the military culture it is to trust each other. Uh, and when you say you're going to deliver something, then you will deliver that thing or over deliver. Uh, whereas if you go to a civilian sector, not every company is like that. And it's not built into the fabric to be able to trust each other in that way. Do you feel like that's something that you are striving to do? Oh, absolutely. You know, it's interesting you mentioned that. You, there's a TED Talk. I can't remember who, who gave it, but he was talking about why PTSD is so much more of an issue now than it ever was before. He said, World War II? <laughs> I mean, soldiers went through, you know, an endless, I mean, you know, anybody who's watched Patton, right, exactly. <laughs> knows, you know, has some idea of, of how relentless um, the, the warfare was. And yet the incidents of, they didn't even have a name for it back then. It was, it was, it was relatively rare. And now it's, it's epidemic. And, and the speaker was, was suggesting that the problem is not what the soldiers underwent in battle. It's what they came home to. Because when they were in their unit, when they were with, when they were with their their comrades, they were um, they were supported. They had that sense of community, common purpose, common values, trust. And then they come back to a society that is so fractured and so undefined 
in its in its values that they come back and they feel lost and so the traumas that they experienced become a source that contributes to that that sense of displacement and and doesn't allow them them to heal so this isn't just an issue in in business it's an issue in in our whole social structure and you use the the the, the phrase the fabric of, of the society that is exactly the problem and mm -hmm. it's it's coming unraveled and uh anybody who watched the recent presidential debates um <laughs> the, the prevailing uh opinion was nobody won the american people lost <laughs> and how did we get here <laughs> more important is how, how do we get where we want to be mm -hmm. No, and I, I I like that last sentiment that you have as well because there are a lot of times, um, and I'd like to hear you know what your perspective on this is. So a lot of times uh, when you uh, are in a business, there are a lot of pointing fingers of trying to figure out you know who did what wrong, and there's so much time that is wasted pointing fingers at people trying to find out who did what wrong so that they themselves can fix it instead of focusing on what the solution should be moving forward, like disregarding who did the thing, what is our goal moving forward and how do we get there? Um, from an ethical perspective, is that is that something that you feel like, I guess, businesses in general should be focusing on? Sure, I mean, it, and of course, we're speaking in generalities. Mm -hmm. uh, every case is going to be different. If if a person has made the same mistake over and over and over again and demonstrates an unwillingness or an inability to learn how to be better, okay, that's that's a problem. Mm -hmm. uh, but we all make mistakes. Mm -hmm. And especially when we're pushing ourselves to try new things, uh, that's always the I mean, this is why this is why there's training. Um, you, you, you try to create a simulated environment where you can make your mistakes without, um, you know, terrible consequences, mm -hmm. but you know, it's just part of life. We're, we're human beings. We, we try things. Some as they work, some as they don't. Sometimes there are circumstances outside our control, or sometimes we just mess up mm -hmm. and, you know, to expect perfection is unreasonable and it also creates an in, uh, an environment or mindset of, of you know cover your rear end um yes, but it's expected I'm, in most companies yeah perfect yeah you know, I'm, ju I'm just going to keep my head down you know simon sinek has this beautiful story about he, he walks into a a coffee shop and then the four seasons hotel and the guy behind uh you know the guy serving the coffee is just he's this personality guy he's making jokes he's, he's smiling he's having a great time and all the customers are having a great time and uh and he says uh simon Sinek says hey, you like your job he goes, i love my job says, what do you love about it he says my bosses come in they say how you doing how's everything going can we do anything to help you is there anything you need he said in the afternoon i work in a different place <laughs> and there the bosses are always trying to catch us doing something wrong Mm -hmm. So I just keep my head down, try to go, try not to be noticed, do my job. And then you think about the customer experience, the same guy serving the same product in two different places. One, the customer's having a great time. And the other, the customer's thinking, oh, it's another, you know, surly you know, guy behind the counter that I don't really want to have to deal with. 
And right. it all is a function of leadership. I, I agree. I'm uh, taking a class actually at MIT right now for innovation and leadership. And it's very interesting that you mentioned that point because one of the one of the quirky studies that uh, we reviewed was this was this gentleman who at the beginning of his class, he would have everyone uh, for 30 seconds draw, uh, try to draw their neighbor, like a caricature or what, you know, whatever, as best as they could they would draw their neighbor. After 30 seconds, they'd have to show it to each other. And uh, at the end of it, a lot of people were giggling and saying, so sorry about what's what's happening. And uh, and then he took that, that same test to a group of five and six-year-olds and had them draw their friends. And it was just a lot of giggling and a lot of fun, no sorries. And so what he learned from that was that uh, it's really been ingrained in us, uh, you know, by, by our leaders or, you know, by natural growing up that uh, we should be afraid of imperfection. We should be ashamed of showing someone, you know, something that we have produced that is not a hundred percent. And so uh, from that, he, he tries to, you know, highlight that and say, hey, as a leader, we basically have to retrain our teams to not be scared of being imperfect because there's so many, so many institutional things, so many uh, leaders, so many people in their lives that have beat into their heads. You have to be a hundred percent to get what you need. Yeah. And I mean, certainly, you know, my orientation comes from, from Jewish tradition. And, and if you read through the Bible, um, you often get a sense of uh, the, the, the Israelites are, are doing this wrong and they're doing that wrong and they're making this mistake and they're making that mistake. Um, and, there is an overemphasis on the mistakes because we learn more from the mistakes. Mm-hmm. And, and if you if you sort of whitewash the past and you everybody's a hero and everybody's born a hero, mm-hmm. then okay, that's nice, but what's it got to do with me? I'm just an ordinary person. <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. If you go to the other extreme and you emphasize the negative without recognizing the good, then you just get depressed. So there always has to be that balance, but great people are are individuals who go through difficult times, who often make mistakes. You know, that that, that beautiful um, speech from, from Teddy Roosevelt about, uh, you know, it's, it's not not the critic, it's the, it's the man in the arena. Um, you know, now we have to make it politically correct, the person in the, in the arena. Um, you know, in his times, they didn't worry about those things. But um, <laughs> the uh, you know, he's who's who's winning mighty victories and suffering great defeats, right? mm-hmm. rather than being one of those those unfortunate souls who lives in the gray twilight of neither neither victory nor defeat. Um, right. It's the ups and the downs that make life interesting. And then you know, if there's no pain, there's no joy. And if there's no um, challenge, then there's no accomplishment. Mm-hmm. And if we don't push ourselves a little bit beyond our limits, a little bit out of our comfort zones, then we're not going to experience a real sense of achievement. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I think that that's an amazing summation. Um, there was one thing too I, I was thinking of whenever I was listening to your TED talk, you had a very powerful story about how you came to change your mind a little bit about uh, 
being a, a rabbi, I guess, or being, you know, about um, religion in general because of this uh, teacher that you saw uh, yeah, yeah. and the way that he worked with you and explained things. And so he, he changed your mind over time. Um, and I feel like that's, that's one of the things that you're trying to accomplish as well as really just trying to change people's minds about the way that they, they view leadership, you know, not just, you know, we're calling it, we're branding it ethical leadership, but really just, you know, leadership in the way that they approach it. So how, how is it that you take the things that you learned about how your mind was changed to be able to change other people's minds about that? Well, it's, I have a certain advantage and it's actually kind of funny because it's, it's the same, it's history coming full circle that when I, when I wandered into this, this rabbinic uh, college, this uh, religious seminary and sort of ended up trapped in a, in a room with a Hasidic rabbi with the big you know, black hat and the long black coat and the scraggly beard. And, the, and, uh, and I was sure you know, this guy's got to be a religious fanatic. He's gonna gonna have a thick uh, Yiddish accent and tell us we're all gonna go to hell if we don't listen to him. <laughs> and then he starts speaking, and he sounds like a college professor, which it turns out he was. <laughs> and it was that shattering of the stereotype that made such an impact on me. And and my favorite story about the TED talk is when I finished, and I and I went out the back, and I was circling circling around to come back into the auditorium, and a woman intercepted me. And she said, you know, when you got up on that stage, I knew exactly what kind of person you were. And I knew exactly what kind of talk you were going to give. And you just shattered all my expectations. <laughs> so it was, it was a really, really um, you know, meaningful moment to me that you know, I had literally become my own future <laughs> uh, in, in accomplishing what he had accomplished with me. But I have a, I have a book coming out shortly called Grappling with the Gray. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, the gray areas and the gray matter. And what it's, it's a book of, of every chapter is very short uh, vignette. It's like an ethical scenario or an ethical dilemma. Mm -hmm. And then a guided discussion of how to look at it from both sides. Because that's really where an ethical perspective comes from. It's the willingness to look at something from both sides and to try and understand each position. If I don't, I, I, if I don't understand why you believe what you believe. How can I possibly be sure that you're wrong? And if I don't understand why you're disagreeing with me, then how can I be sure that I'm right? Mm -hmm. So rather than being afraid that, you know, maybe I'm going to discover that I haven't thought something through, shouldn't I be pleased? I mean, wouldn't I rather dis discover that I've been wrong than mm -hmm. continue to be wrong? And yet, you know, our egos get involved and our sense of, you know, our, our sense of security gets challenged mm -hmm. and, um, and we, we, we sort of bury our heads in the sand. We don't want to look at things because we're afraid of the truth that we might find. That's so powerful. When, um, when is this book being uh, published? It's due out in October, which is... Right around the corner. Yeah, <laughs> right around the corner. In a day, in fact, I believe tomorrow's yeah, October. I don't I don't have the release date yet, but it is supposed to be in October. All right. Well, we'll be waiting with bated breath. <laughs> 
Um, thank you, Yonason, for, for coming on. Uh, and I appreciate you sharing your perspectives. Was there anything, any last uh, notes or bits of wisdom that you wanted to share with the operation innovation team? Um, you know, we, we, we talk about a lot today about, um, you know, diversity, inclusion, equity. Um, and so much of it really comes down to those stereotypes, those preconceptions. You know, my experience is such that that if I would have reacted the way I wanted to, <laughs> according to my initial impression of the way someone looked, I never would have given myself the opportunity to discover the outlook that has defined the last 35 years of my life. Uh, I can't even imagine where I would be right now. And when we, you know, there's a certain defense mechanism in our brains that we, we are, there's so much input coming. I just heard a statistic, don't know if it's true or not, but it's something like our, our, our brains are dealing with 11,000 bits of information, you know, at, at any one time. Um, sounds, sounds exaggerated, but who knows? Um, <laughs> I'll have to Google it later. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> don't quote me on it. But, but there's a lot of input coming in and we have to make so many decisions. And so when we see people that are new to us, we reach for these labels, we reach for these stereotypes so we can sort of get a handle on things fast. Mm -hmm. right? Otherwise we'd just be overloaded and we'd shut down. And that's okay as long as we don't lock people into those stereotypes, into those pigeonholes. Right. Okay, now that I think I know who you are, let me actually get to know you. And maybe there are things about you that I never would have imagined. Maybe you have things to, to teach me that I don't know about the world or that I don't even know about myself. And it's okay to be curious. Being curious means there are things I don't know. <laughs> okay not to know things. And it's okay to be wrong as long as we want to get things right. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Uh, I appreciate everything that you brought to the brought to the team here. Uh, I wish I could keep you on for another hour and a half, but I know that, that time's ticking. <laughs> we can talk to you can all your meetings right after this. <laughs> I hope we'll do it again sometime. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So um, thank you very much uh, to the Op-In team. Uh, I hope that this added some really great uh, tools to your tool bag to uh, reach your mountains of success. And um, I, I just uh, am excited to, to be able to bring people like Jonasen on and, uh, and share his wonderful gift with you guys. So thank you again so much. I appreciate it.